Praise the Lord. Good morning. All right. That's the old-fashioned way to zoom the words and make them bigger, right? Praise the Lord. (laughs) All right. Uh, If you would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. How's everybody doing this morning? Praise the Lord. Title of my message is The Work is Finished. How many like to hear that at the end of the work day? Praise the Lord. Spiritually, it's very important to understand um, about the finished work. And so this morning, that's what we're going to get into. And uh, and uh, I don't know if you were listening to that song this morning. Um, the Spirit is working. He continues working. He's still working. And uh, some of you understand what that song means, but uh, this particular scripture really sheds light onto what that means. What is the Spirit doing? What's the Spirit working? What's the Spirit constantly moving and doing? And and um, and this scripture that we're on today, the finished work of Christ, put into motion this Holy Spirit that's doing work in all of our lives. And if we're participants um, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is working through each and every one of us all the time, even when you don't know it. He's working, just like that song says. So let's really listen to what the Spirit of the Lord has to say this morning. Hallelujah. How many want to just hear a word? No, don't say that. How many want to hear a word from the Lord? We don't just want to hear a word. I'm sorry, I set you up wrong for that one. We want to hear a word from the Lord this morning. Hallelujah. Uh, I'm going to start off in uh, Galatians 1, 11 through 24. And I'm going to be kind of bold this morning. I'm going to hit two large sections of text here. But it's very important to go back to 1.11. I, I finished off in Galatians 1.10 last week. And um, in order for me to teach Galatians 2, it's very important that I cover this section briefly in Galatians 1.11 to 24. And this is Paul just kind of explaining, where did I get this message called the gospel? You know, last week I was talking about how there's only one gospel that's been preached from the very beginning, and we have to be careful that we only preach that one gospel. There's not multiple gospels. There's not lots of ways to heaven. There's one gospel of Jesus Christ that's presented in the Word, and uh, we have to be very careful. How many know God doesn't line up with us? You say, well, man, I hope God's behind our church. I hope he's behind our denomination. I hope he's behind us. You know, I hope God, we've got God with us. Okay, God doesn't do that. We can only line up with God. And so whatever he teaches in his word, I can get behind that and I can teach it. And I'm with God, but God doesn't line up behind me. He doesn't line up behind this church. He doesn't line up behind a denomination. He not lines up behind his word. And so if we teach it well and we teach it correctly, then we're lined up with God. And that's where we want our lives to line up this morning. Hallelujah. It says in Galatians chapter 1, this is Paul speaking. It says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which, which, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries 
in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I did not immediately, I'm sorry, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I wrote to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only... He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, strengthen me, Lord God, and put your words in me, Lord, not my words, but yours. Let me preach your gospel, Lord. Let me preach, Lord, the finished work of you, Lord Jesus, for us. And Lord, I pray that there'd be hearts to receive it and hear it and comprehend it and understand it, Lord. And uh, Lord Jesus, we pray all these things in your name and everybody says, amen. Hallelujah. So be it, Lord. Hallelujah. So Paul starts off in verse 11 and he says, the gospel which was preached by me, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it from man, but it came through the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And uh, if anybody could ever say that his gospel didn't come from a man, now normally you say, well, man, that's not that unusual, is it? But it is kind of unusual. How many know that Paul got it in a very unusual way? Normally, you see, if I were to ask somebody, how did you receive the gospel or how did you learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ? A normal person would probably say, well, man, I would go to church every Sunday morning. And I would listen to a pastor preach or I would go to Sunday school and they would teach me about Jesus Christ. And that's how I learned about it. Or somebody might say, you know, well, my grandma or my grandpa or my dad or my mom and somebody. And so usually it's a man or a woman or somebody, an individual that has taught you the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here we have a very unique case. And it's very important that I don't go past this to the real crux of my sermon, which is the finished work of Christ, because we have to understand how Paul got it because he thinks it's very important that people understand how he got it and how unique of a person Paul is, okay? Because Paul was not a guy that was in a position to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm very much, uh, that's an understatement. Okay, he's not the guy that was sitting in Sunday school. He's not the guy that was sitting in a Christian church. Paul begins to explain how he received it and why he says that no man taught me this. But it was revealed. Revelation just means a revealing of this gospel by Jesus Christ himself. So I want you to picture the story a little bit because it's a pretty amazing story that sometimes we don't give enough credit to. But Paul is riding on on the road to Damascus, okay? He's probably uh, on a horse, 
right? And he's with a group of people, and he has one mission in life, and that is to arrest Christians and destroy this thing called Christianity and these people that follow Jesus Christ and the people that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has a sense of humor. You have to understand the rich irony of who God is calling to be a presenter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's the number one guy who's trying to destroy it. Okay? And so Paul, his entire life, has grown up and has been raised as an expert of the Old Testament. Okay? And so in Judaism or the Jewish faith, um, he's maybe one of the greatest young minds in the world at that time. I mean, he is brilliant. He has been under the uh, tutelage or the teaching of one of the most brilliant minds ever to be in Judaism, which is Gamaliel. So he was at a very young age raised to know the Old Testament. And I told you the Old Testament really is a revealing of a person who is called the Christ. There is a person from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, and he's called the Messiah. And all of Israel, all of the Jewish people know that there is going to be somebody who comes. He's going to be born of a virgin. And the Bible goes in great lengths to tell you that when this person comes, he's the one that is going to redeem not just Israel, but all of mankind from sin. He's actually going to um, be the one path to heaven is this person called the Messiah. And so Paul has been an expert from his birth about studying the Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish people are a unique people. The Bible says that God entrusted them with all of the prophecies. God entrusted them with all of the word of God from the beginning of the garden until um, the entire word was given to them as custodians. In fact, God entrusted them to guard the word. And so they're a unique people. In fact, they have a whole group called scribes and Pharisees. And the Pharisees are there to do nothing but their lawyers to debate the law. You know, to make sure that the law is debated openly and thoroughly so they know what it means to obey the law. And then the scribes are there to make sure that that word is delivered to every generation exactly the way it was delivered uh, by God through the Holy Spirit. So they go to great lengths. If you ever look at the lengths that a scribe went through, uh, I mean, they literally cannot even have a comma, an apostrophe, anything um, in the writing of, and, and the, how many know they didn't have copy machines? Okay, the scribes were their copy machines. Okay, and they were so strict that they couldn't make one single mistake or you'd throw all the work away. Okay, and so every generation had scribes who were the copy machines. Okay, what a call in life, huh? I'm a human copy machine, right? But the scribes got entrusted. So there's not been a people like this who are entrusted with a word from God, but they were waiting, waiting, waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah comes and their own prophecies say they will reject him. And so as a people, they won't recognize him. They'll reject him. And some of these prophecies are so concealed in the Old Testament that they just were blinded. The Bible prophesied that they wouldn't even recognize when he came. 
And Paul was one of these people that was just blinded. He didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. And so as one of the great young minds, guess what his job was? To wipe out the Christian faith. He was convinced that it was not of God. He was convinced that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And boy, was he in store for a very rude awakening. He's writing and he has letters from Jerusalem to wipe out Christians, arrest them and put them in jail. He's one, do you understand that he's 100% sold out in the fact that Jesus is not the Messiah? And so now he's in the awkward position of explaining how Jesus Christ called him to be <laughs> the messenger of this new faith in Jesus Christ. What an awkward position. And so he says, he begins to tell the story in Acts 9 about the trip that he had to Damascus and what a trip it was. It was a real trip, right? I'm using that in several different ways. He's, I want you to imagine him riding along with letters to arrest Christians and suddenly he has a bright light that literally blinds him. And you say, well, how blind was he? Did it just uh, kind of uh, for a second, you know, like when I look at the sun? No, he was blind for three days. And he sees Jesus Christ himself recognize it as Jesus Christ. And he says, what do you, what do you want? Well, he can't see anything. People don't know what's going on. He falls on the ground and he says, he said, I'm the one. He said, he said, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And he tells him, he calls him to be a messenger of his gospel. And he says, go to a certain city. In fact, when we pick it up here, let me read this to you. He tells him to go to a certain city. And so here's, in Acts chapter 9, it says, okay, it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it says, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. So this story just gets more and more amazing. There's a Christian in Antioch named Ananias. Paul's not in that city yet. He gets blinded completely. He's totally blind. All right. Jesus calls him to be a minister of his gospel, which by the way, he's like, Lord, did I mention to you? I hate you. You guys realize Paul hated Jesus Christ. And he says, you're going to be my messenger. And I want you to go to a certain city completely blind I want you to find a guy, a Christian named Ananias, and I want to tell you all the things you're going to suffer for me. Jesus called him and said, I'm going to tell you the things you're going to suffer. You're going to be a messenger for me. And Paul's like, I hate you though. Do you understand how weird this is? And so Paul, this very religious legalistic person, who by the way is one of the great minds, I'll say again, he goes to Ananias in this city And it says, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to Ananias, go to a street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Now, what do you think Ananias thought when he heard the name Saul of Tarsus, which is Paul? Fear. Here's his reaction. Look for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in 
putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen vessel of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now don't be confused by Saul. He has two names. Most in that world had two names. They had their Jewish name and their name that they did business with, which was another name. So he was Saul and Paul were his names. He went his way, entered his house, laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not the one who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem? And has he not come here for that purpose so he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, But their plot became known to Saul as they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, led him down through the wall in a large basket. And then Saul came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. This is amazing. You imagine if you became a Christian and everybody in the church is scared of you because you were killing all the Christians or arresting the Christians or brutalizing the Christians who believe. Now all of a sudden God... I think as a sense of humor, really. But Barnabas took Paul, brought him to our Saul, and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them that he had seen the Lord on the road, and he had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists that attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him to Caesarea, and they sent him out to Tarsus. So Paul is very unusual. Paul just had, did did you see that he immediately started preaching Christ was the Lord? So God was doing something amazing in him. And Paul says, I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the reason he says that is, did you notice that he immediately started preaching about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. He didn't take any time. He just automatically, something clicked inside of him. And the way that could happen is because Paul knew the Old Testament probably as well as anybody. And when he realized that this Jesus Christ is not dead anymore, he watched him crucified, watched him die, watched him resurrect. He was arresting the people that, what was the one thing all the people kept saying? He's alive. He's alive. We've seen him. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And guess who also seen him alive? Paul. And so Paul immediately recognized 
this is the one the Bibles have, the Bible has spoken about from the very beginning. And he didn't need a lot of teaching. He just needed to know that he was alive. And he began to plug that Messiah in to everything that he'd ever read his entire life. And suddenly the light went on and it clicked. The gospel of Jesus Christ made sense to Paul because he was, again, in fact, if you look at the apostles, there may not have been another one that was well trained as well trained in the Old Testament as Paul was. So he was a very unique person. So Paul says he learned it by revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he said, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. That means that you can't measure anybody else to have done more damage to the church of God than this guy, right? So he's done more damage than anybody, but now he is the one who's preaching the gospel. And it says, and I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he was a very, um, he, he did everything you were supposed to do to be a good Jewish boy in the faith. He did everything. He did all the ceremonies, the religious things, everything you were supposed to do. He says, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Do you see Paul saying that God, when it pleased, and not when it pleased me. In fact, how many know Paul wasn't looking for this job? Paul wasn't, God actually said, now it's time I'm going to do my will in you, Paul. And God had desired to do this with Paul since Paul was in his mother's womb. And God said, now it's time, Paul. I'm going to do this in you. And how many have ever had that call from Jesus Christ? You say, well, man, you know what? I've been doing this my whole life and I'm the least likely person to be serving God. Well, you may not be able to have that title because Paul kind of has that title. He's the least likely to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if God has called you, how many of you know you've been called since you were in your mother's belly to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? God's decided it. If God is awakening your soul, God has decided through his grace that he's calling you to be a vessel. And you, and, and we are sometimes like Paul. You're like, you know what? I'm the last one, but God's drafted me to do this. And so here's Paul by the grace of God. God's calling him to preach the gospel. And it says that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Notice Paul is calling himself an apostle. Then he says, but I went to Arabia and returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I remained with him for 15 days. Then I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now this is very fascinating Because sometimes people will tell you that there were 12 unique apostles and they wrote the scriptures and there were none besides them. But something I'll show you here, Paul is calling himself an apostle. And he wasn't one of the 12. And by the way, James, the brother of Jesus, was not one of the 12 either. And some people don't notice that. He's calling James one of the apostles because he didn't see any of the other ones except Peter 
and James, uh, he didn't see the other apostles. So James, who wrote the book of James, was also another one of the apostles. And so it's very fascinating that Paul says that. We need to kind of recognize that. It says, now concerning the things that I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea who were in Christ. How many know he had a reputation in Jerusalem, they just didn't know his face? But they had heard all about him, Right? It says, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So Paul, um, Paul, is, Paul returned back to the place where he grew up. And so I want to go over this one more time just so you start getting a pretty good comfort with geography. But like I said last week, as you go to Israel and you look north, you see Syria to the uh, west and you see Lebanon to the east. Then you go a little to the west across the coast of the Mediterranean and you see the place where Paul is from, which is a region called Cilicia. Okay, how many know where modern Turkey is? Or I didn't say Turkey and turkey sandwiches. I said the modern nation of Turkey. Everybody knows where that's at, right? It's in Asia. And so as you look at the lower part of Turkey, that's the area called Cilicia. Then you go up, that's the church of Galatia, is actually the nation of Turkey. And the reason I say this is because you go a little bit further north, that is the Black Sea. So the Black Sea and the Mediterranean right in the middle is the place called Galatia. And Paul is down in the area right by the Mediterranean. Then there's uh, the whole nation of Turkey there, the Black Sea. How many know what's above the Black Sea? The reason I say that is because all the news is located right now in that region. So as you go above the Black Sea, that's where Ukraine is and that's where southern Russia is. And so as you begin to study the Bible, I'm just going to insert this in here just so you start thinking about it a little bit. But you go to the Black Sea, uh, that's where Snake Island and all these battles that we're seeing in the news right now. And then you see Ukraine is there. And so we see in prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see that the north of Israel, there will eventually be some nations that will unite together to come against Israel on that northern front there. And Russia seems to be the group that leads that Muslim nation. So it's something you always want to watch in prophecy. It could be this generation. It could be future generations. But just remember that to the north of Israel, uh, there's nothing else there but the Russian, the former um, Soviet provinces, and then uh, Russia and Ukraine and all of those areas are just above the Black Sea. So just throwing that in, it's something to watch with biblical prophecy with everything that's going on in the news. Um, but here's Paul. He says that I go back to my hometown, and for three years, he actually, the area right next to his hometown is a place called Arabia. So Saudi Arabia actually went up to where Paul is near in Cilicia there. And so he went kind of to an isolated place, and it appears that all Paul did for those three years is just study the scriptures. How many know Paul was probably pretty wrecked at this point? So he's sitting there alone, studying the word, nobody's around him. And I think Paul probably wrote the book of Hebrews. And if he did write the book of Hebrews, God is just flooding his mind with who this Messiah is. And so you've got to understand this is a critical point in our faith and the faith of a Jewish person. Because everything that the Jews have ever learned, now listen to me very carefully, is predicated on the fact that God is going to send the Messiah. Everything. And so Paul, for those three years, 
has to come to the reality that the Messiah has come. He's resurrected. He is alive. He died for our sins. He resurrected. And now he is the Messiah that fulfills all of these scriptures. And so when Paul, for instance, let me give you the book of Leviticus, okay? Very important stuff because Paul is the one that is one of the designated messengers to deliver the gospel that we preach. And so this could have just been the Jewish religion with the Messiah, but God wanted the gospel to go to all men. And in order for that to do that, they had to really understand who is Jesus Christ. And so, for instance, when you're in Leviticus, it's broken up into two sections. It's broken up into one section that is all the sacrifices, all the uh, feasts that they're to celebrate as a nation. And how many know God gave his law? God gave his law on Mount Sinai and said, obey the law, be obedient to the law. Here's the laws that I expect, but here is the sacrifice for when you fail. You say, well, why didn't he just give the law, let them obey it, and then they're all right with God? Because God knew that their mind and their heart was so twisted that they would do their very best to try to obey the law, but they would fail. And so God in those sacrifices provided a Messiah, provided a Savior. Everything that they did from the laying their hands on a lamb to sacrifice him was a representation that one day my son is going to come. He's going to die for you. So for all these thousands of years, every time an animal was sacrificed in the temple, it screamed Jesus Christ. It screamed my Messiah. It screamed my son's death for your sins. This innocent lamb, every time a family would sacrifice it, they knew that one day that's going to be fulfilled ultimately by the son of God dying on a cross and Paul was coming to the realization that he's fulfilled every single detail from the Old Testament. In fact, the other half of uh, Leviticus is all of the different prophetic timelines that God has through the Passover, the Pentecost, every single feast pointed to Jesus's death, burial, resurrection. When they, 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 when they had the Passover lamb, and the, and, and the death angel went over their house and passed over, they knew that it represented the death of the Messiah. When they put the unleavened bread in their shirt and walked out of Egypt, they knew that was the burial of the living bread that would be Jesus Christ. It represented the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They knew at Pentecost, it represented the Spirit to be poured out to do His work in a believer's life and the, and the Spirit of God being poured out on the church. How many know that everything pointed to this Messiah and for three years, Paul is sitting in Arabia and it's just flooding him. It's just overwhelming what he's learning from Jesus Christ, this revelation. And so Paul comes back after the three years and he says in Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2 verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation lest by any means I might run or have run in vain. You know, even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, he wasn't a Jew, 
was not was not compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. They might bring us into bondage to whom we might yield submission. We would not yield submission even for an hour uh, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul says, after 14 years, I found the apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay? He said, I found James, I found Peter, I found all of the apostles... And I had a conference with those who were important, those who um, had reputation, and I began to share basically my notes. I began to share with them the gospel that I was preaching to the Gentiles, and he said that they all agreed with me. Like nobody had taught me this, but Jesus Christ... I studied it for three years. I plugged Jesus Christ the Messiah into the Old Testament and they agreed with everything that I said to the point that I had a Greek person with me. I think Paul intentionally planted him in there just to see how they would react. He said a Greek person was with me and nobody compelled him to be circumcised. Okay, now I mentioned this to you last week. The one sign that God gave Abraham was circumcision. And that meant that you were a believer when you did that. It was a sign that I am a Jewish person and I am a believer. And in the New Testament, they begin to take all these old ceremonies of the Jewish system and they begin to understand the spiritual significance of it. And so in the New Testament, they begin to say that that ceremony meant a circumcision of the heart. In fact, I told you last week to really simplify it circumcision meant that everybody who brings new life into this world basically God was going to put a mark on every man who ever brought life into this world that that child needs a savior and so God wanted to stress that there is going to be a savior born but know that every person that's ever born into this world will have to have this savior and so circumcision became a spiritual thing through Jesus Christ, all these ceremonies, the ceremonial system began to go away because Jesus was the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. You understand the weight of this? They've done sacrifices and ceremonies their entire life pointing to the one who was going to come. The one comes and many of them say, that's not him. And now Paul recognized it is him. And because it is him, it has a severe impact on everything that we're doing now. Now everything that pointed to him is now not relevant anymore. It's not necessary to be circumcised. It's not necessary to sacrifice a lamb. It's not necessary to go through the whole ceremonial system that we've done for thousands of years. It's all fulfilled in his death. And so today, I've got the job of making you understand what that sacrifice meant. How much time do you have? (laughs) Okay, but from those who seem to be something, whatever there were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to my gospel. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised have been committed to me and the gospel of the circumcised to Peter, for he worked effectively in Peter 
um, for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars of the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they sh- and, and they to the circumcised, they desired only that we should remember the poor, which is the very thing I'm eager to do. Now, I'm not going to go through and explain all that, but listen to the line that sums it up. It says, now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James who would not eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself fearing those who are of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews who played hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away in their hypocrisy. So what is the hypocrisy that Paul is witnessing here and he's very upset about? Paul had won all of these Gentiles to the Lord and made them understand that everything is fulfilled in Christ. And now all Christ expects is faith in him. And now when the disciples are coming from Jerusalem, they're saying, no, you need more than faith in Christ. You have to follow the ceremonies. And Paul said, no, I told them to their face that that is not the gospel that we were delivered. We all agreed. Remember Paul said we came to Jerusalem and we all had an agreement. And then the next time Paul sees them, what are they doing? They're saying, no, the thing we agreed on is not what we're doing. Now you have to have circumcision and ceremonies. And so this isn't important to us today because we don't do the ceremonies, but we have to understand um, how this will creep back into the church if we're not careful. Because this is a thing called justification. So Paul goes on and begins to explain it. He said, but when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as a Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Do you see this? Peter was not living uh, in the Jewish religion anymore. He was living like the Gentiles, though he wasn't eating certain foods. He wasn't going through the ceremonies. He wasn't living like a Jewish person anymore. He was living with faith in Jesus Christ because he recognized Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And Peter didn't need them anymore. Peter was free from that. He said, but you went away from that. He said, you became a hypocrite and went back to what you were doing before as if Christ had never died. Because Paul says, knowing, let's see, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Knowing that a man is, now this is where it gets important. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Not by the works of the law. No flesh shall be justified. And that's where I'm going to stop and spend most of my time because I can get... How many know when you teach on justification by faith, you can get bogged down in theological terms? And I'm going to shut my Bible here and I'm going to begin to explain this very simply. As we begin to go along here, justification. Here's what it's all about. Here's what it means. This is salvation 
the most simple basics Paul is trying to teach them about salvation. And it's a word called justification. And church, if we don't understand this today, if you've not understood it up until now, it's going to be very difficult uh, to walk in a relationship with Jesus Christ because justification is the foundation of everything. And here's the term. In fact, when they would hear it in their culture, um, they would think of a term like our term, not guilty. That's the term they would think about when they heard the word justification for the first time from Paul in Galatians. And you say, not guilty. Well, how does this affect me? Because the Bible says all of us are going to stand account before God. We're going to literally stand before his throne. And he's just going to... How many know when you're in a court of law and they've got all the charges against you? I'm coming down here again make everybody nervous. But I'm trying to not get bogged down in theology because I can really get messed up here. But how many know when you have a charge against you in a court of law, there's not maybe he did it, maybe he did some of it, maybe he did a little bit of it but not that, or maybe he didn't fully do this but fully did that. There's guilty and not guilty. Guilty and not guilty. That's all there is. And so this is a legal term from their justice system, justification is, And the question that Paul's trying to answer very simply is, how can we go to God and get a clean record? Because God is going to judge us based on something called the law of God. And if we break any of those commandments, we're guilty of all the commandments. You say, well, man, I sure keep the Ten Commandments. I've kept them pretty well, you know, I'm a good person and so I'm feeling pretty good about my chances. And so you're going to go before God and, you, and, and, and they're, going to read the, they're going to read one and they're going to say, thou shalt not bear false witness. You're going to say, well, have you ever lied? And you're going to say, are you saying that I represent myself in a way that wasn't true? Well, what do you mean? What's the line for that? You know, is it a white lie or is it a real lie? Or you preached about this last week. What kind of lie is it? And so we're going to be, there's no halfway. There's no like, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You know, there's no in between. There's just not guilty and guilty. And, and so we're probably, most of us are going to get a guilty. And then we're going to say, you know, thou shalt not steal. And so the question is, where does God draw the line on stealing? Is it a piece of bubble gum? You know, is it stealing somebody's honor or is it stealing? I mean, there's all kinds. How many know when a lawyer has a charge and he's prosecuting you, it's very difficult to not be looking guilty. In fact, the Bible says that when the prosecuting attorney stands up, they look guilty. But then when the defense attorney steps up, they look innocent. (laughs) You know, and, and if you've ever heard a prosecuting attorney, they can sure make you look guilty. And guess who the prosecuting attorney is? Satan. Bible says he's the accuser before God. And so he's prosecuting us. And all he has to do is prove that we, um, prove that we broke, we violated the law. And so here's what's going to happen. The Bible says that every man and woman is guilty before the law. And so if our way of being found innocent, getting the charge that says innocent, is by obeying the law, 
then we're not going to make it. We're not going to be justified. There's no possible way to be justified. And so Paul is trying to stress that because the Jews were very proud. You know, God gave us the law, entrusts us with the law, and we're law keepers and that's how we're justified. And Paul was saying, no, it's never worked that way. Because if you were justified by the law, you wouldn't have needed the sacrifices. You wouldn't have needed all these things that were part of the law. And finally, it came to Paul, probably as he studied, that, hey, wait a minute, we're all guilty under the law. And it's always been by faith in the Messiah that we've always been saved under Jewish law. You never were able to keep the law. You can only trust in the sacrifices to um, cover your sin and then there had to be a Messiah to die who was the son of God to wash our sins away. And so Paul began to understand what God had been trying to tell them for thousands of years that we only can trust in the Messiah and not in the law. And so Paul begins to try to explain justification and now I have the opportunity this morning to try to make you understand it And so I prayed, God, how am I going to do this without getting bogged down in theology? And one of the places that God brought me to was the... um, How many remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? And he's being crucified, he's about to die. And it says this in John chapter 19. I'm going to make this really simple for you today. In John chapter 19, it says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. This is 1928. He knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. They soaked a sponge in it, put a hyssop branch, held it to his lips. And when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, Jesus said something here that will make us understand what justification is. And it's going to make it really simple. The word is tetelestai. It's a Greek word. Everybody say that, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's three words when we transliterate in English. It's one word in the Greek. And this is a word that we understand well. How many have ever had a, a bill that maybe you've paid on for a long time? Maybe a mortgage or maybe you've had a car that you said, man, I love that car. And you had that big payment on it. And you're like, wow, is this thing ever going to end? I've been paying on this thing for a long time. And, or maybe you go in somewhere and you buy a high dollar product and they give you a receipt. And you're like, man, I better hold on to that receipt because they're not going to let me out the doors with this thing. And uh, how many have ever seen that stamp that says paid in full? That's tetelestai. That is the Greek merchant's term. They had their little stamps probably in their day where they would stamp something that was purchased and say tetelestai. And so they would say that, hey, it's been paid in full. Now, how many know when Jesus is dying on the cross, they understood what he was saying. It was a very clever use of words. Uh, because he said, I fulfilled my mission. In fact, there's another place in the Bible where he uses the same words. He says he comes to do the will of the Father. He's coming to do the mission that the Father had for him. And in fact, another way that this word would use, how many have ever had a list of tasks that you want to accomplish? 
And you have that little to-do list. And maybe your wife made that list for you. And you're like, oh man, finally. I can watch a ball game on Saturday and do what I want to do because my list is done. And so when you get done with that list, or maybe say you're a Navy SEAL and you uh, have a mission. And you're like, man, I can't tell anybody the mission. I'm going to go accomplish this mission. And and uh, when we do it, I'm coming back home, you know. And so when they get done, how many remember when we stood on the warship and we had the big banner that said mission accomplished. And they came back home. Same word to Telestai. The tasks are accomplished. The mission is done. The debt has been paid in full. This is a word that is recognizable. Very, very recognizable in the ancient world. In fact, the priests on the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice the lamb. They would prepare it completely, do everything God told them. And how many know it's pointing to the Messiah? And when they finish the lamb, completion of the lamb, finish the sacrifice exactly the way God said, guess what they would say? To Telestai. It's finished. Another one. An artist, they say. Tori, you could probably relate to this. How much work do you put in a painting or a drawing? And how many know it's painstaking? Every detail, and then you look at it and say, oh man, I could put a little more shading there, I can change the background here. And I've seen her torture herself with her paintings and And they say in the ancient world that it was a common word that when the artist finally finished the work, to telestai is what they would say when they pulled the canvas off, took the you know cover off of it, and said it's finished, completely done. And so you're starting to see in this ancient world the word that Jesus Christ was using. For justification. He's trying to say the work's finished. It's completed. Everything that God sent me to do, I did it and it's done and I'm giving up my spirit now. I'm going back to the Father because I've accomplished everything that God has accomplished for me to do for your salvation. It's done. And so justification, in fact, I want you to think about it this way if you're taking notes. Salvation has three facets, not three different steps and not three different ways. It's three different facets to it. Justification is you have been saved. That means that everything that God needed to do to save you, he did it and Jesus Christ accomplished it. It was finished. That's called justification. That means that when I go before God, if I put my faith in Jesus Christ... I just have to show him my name and it's stamped on there, paid in full. And you say, well, wait a minute, I've got to be good. I've got to do all these things to be good enough to be saved and good enough to earn it and good enough to do it. And Paul's going to, we're going to go spend lots of time in Galatians. Paul's going to say, for instance, one of the next things we'll study is he'll say, If you work for a wage and got a check, you earned that check. But grace is not earning a paycheck, it's receiving a gift. And so Christ is trying to say, 
If you accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to accept that it's been paid in full. It's been stamped. And so there's another facet of salvation. It's called sanctification. That means you are being saved. So you have been saved through justification. And then through faith, you step into the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And every day, how many know God has promised you the Holy Spirit? And by faith, every day He is changing you. He's doing work in you. He's accomplishing work because you have faith and you've stepped into the sacrifice of Christ. And every day, how many know that He is taking He literally is taking things out of you that the enemy has put there. But you can't be in that process until you've been justified. Until you know that you're saved, you know you're right with God, you know that his sacrifice is there. Now the Holy Spirit is available to a person whose tag has been pat. You'll punch and it says paid in full on my way to heaven. And now while you're on your way to heaven, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit every day is going to do a work in you because you're right with God. You say, well, man, I'm not good enough, though. I'm still messing up. I'm still doing things wrong. And that's the song that we were singing. His spirit is working. His spirit is working. He's doing things. Even if you don't know it, he's doing it. Even if you don't know it, he's doing it. That's the spirit crying that I'm doing my work in you. And that's a part of salvation. How many know that? He saved you so he could sanctify you. You say, well, wait a minute. I've got sin in my life. Maybe I'm not saved. That's why he justified you. He stamped your card and said, paid in full so you could receive the Holy Spirit. And now he's sanctifying you. He's literally doing surgical procedures in you spiritually. You say, well, man, I'm such a bad person. That's why he saved you. He saved you so he could sanctify you. And you say, is sanctification different than justification? Do I have to earn it? Do I have to be a good boy? Do I have to be a good Jewish boy? Do I have to be a good Christian boy? Do I have to listen to all the things they told me? No, you just have to submit yourself through faith and say, God, I receive your Holy Spirit because you love me, not because I've earned it. And God has promised to sanctify you by faith. Now how, now here's what the Galatians did. They accepted Jesus Christ's justification and then somewhere along the line they tripped up and they said it's about me. And it's about what I do and about the ceremonies and about, and all these people started coming in, getting in their ear and started saying you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this. God said no, my spirit is working. My spirit is working. You trust me. You have faith in me. You know that my spirit is working. Even when you feel rotten, my spirit is working. Even And it's by faith that I submit myself to God and it's by His sacrifice that He sanctifies me. And then the third step is you'll be one day saved. In fact, there's coming a day when He will actually, God will actually save you on that day. He'll save you from an eternity without God. He'll give you a body that won't sin. And you say, what is it based on? What is my salvation in that day based on? Because I'm scared about that day. You say, is it my works? Is it what I've done? Is it my good outweighing my bad? Is it maybe I had a good day, maybe I had a bad day? And he says, no, it's the same. It's my gift of salvation. It justifies you, it sanctifies you, and you will be glorified in my presence one day because you trusted in me. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet.
Just remember that word, to tell us die. Jesus said, it is finished. I've accomplished it all. All you have to do is trust me today, trust me tomorrow, trust me the next day. Just have faith in me as your Savior, and I'm going to pull you all the way through, and you're going to be in my presence. Not because of you, because my Spirit is working in you from the first day to the last day. Trust in me. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we understand that our justification is not by our works, Lord. It's by your sacrifice. Lord, that you gave yourself for us, Lord God. And Lord, now we willingly submit our lives to you, Lord. And Lord, today we thank you, Lord, for that salvation that you've purchased for us, Lord, that you paid in full and And Lord, I just pray that there would be the right response from us, Lord, today. In your name I pray, hallelujah. Now church, I just want to explain one thing to you. And here's the real issue that the church of Galatia had. If God offers a free sacrifice, what is the proper response? What is the proper response? And there are two directions of error that people always go in our generation future generations even the church of galatia there are two directions that people go that are not the correct response of faith one direction is called legalism the other direction is called liberalism or antinomianism they would call it in uh, theology legalism is I'm going to do all these things because there's something else that's required of me that I have to do, that I have to earn in order to get my salvation. There's something I have to do. In fact, I'm not doing good works because I love Jesus and I appreciate his sacrifice and and I want to glorify him. I want to praise him with my life. I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it because I feel like I have to do something to earn it. So whenever I do well, I'm happy. Whenever I do bad, I'm sad. I'm condemned. I'm either happy or I'm sad because my behavior has to be something in order for me to earn it. And that church is legalism. Then there's the opposite reaction with the Bible equally condemns. And that is God has no expectation for my life. There is no moral responsibility for me as a believer. There's nothing uh, that God expects from me when I'm living this life. And so we absolutely throw away uh, everything that God asks of us as a Christian. And the Bible says this is our reasonable Sacrifice. That means that I am going to, I'm going to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. And so, God, what do you want from my life? God, what is pleasing to you in my life? And guess what? We wake up every day and because we appreciate His sacrifice, we say, God, I want to do whatever you call me to do. I'll do my best every day for you. But it's not earning our salvation. How many understand that? It's the right response to a person that understands the sacrifice that we receive, that I'll get up every day and Christ, I'll give you my best because I love you. Not because I have to earn it, but because I love you. And those are the two extremes, legalism, where I have to do all these things 
or liberalism where I have no devotion whatsoever to Christ. And both of those are a false balance. And that's what Paul's preaching against in Galatians is those two directions, legalism and liberalism. And God's saying, hey, serve me with all of your heart. You're not perfect, but because you love me, serve me with all your heart. Make me the Lord of your life. And uh, in church, I would just open that to you today. We're going to worship, but if you need prayer, you say, man, I don't understand justification or faith or anything. Um, I want to pray with you today. Hallelujah. But um, if you would, just, uh, you know, just, just spend some time with the Lord and just evaluate where you're at in your life. Hallelujah. so separated. In fact, to be a Pharisee, the word literally meant to be a separated one. And one thing you don't catch in the Greek there while we're studying it is, Paul says he was separated from birth to reach the Gentiles. And he was playing on words by using the name that the Pharisees used to describe themselves. He says, yeah, I'm separated, but now I'm separated to reach them, not to not have lunch with them. Isn't that amazing that he did that? And one of the amazing things I like about that word tetelestai, one of the other uses for it that is amazing is a prisoner would be in his cell and they would put a placard up on the cell in the ancient days that would show all of his crimes that he's serving time for. And do you know what happened when he completed his time in jail they would give him that card and it would say to tell us die on it and so that way he could never be tried for that again he just had to show him the card and how many know when Jesus Christ died I became totally clean like everything that I've ever done to anybody how many know that Jesus wrote to tell us die on my record? And all I have to do is show that card when I get to heaven. They're going to say, what are you here for? And David said, blessed is the person whose sins are not held against them. And I'm just going to show them that card and I'm going to say, to tell us die, he paid it all. And God's going to look and he's going to say, I don't see anything there anymore. Everybody's on the level ground with to tell us die. And because I received Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life and I received that sacrifice, grace is amazing to me. Let me know when the guy wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he had a pretty long record. That guy was a terrible guy. 
That guy had actually killed people, drove slave ships, did all kinds of terrible things. And he wrote a song called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And how many know you can walk into church and if it's about you, you're always going to be condemned. But if it's about his grace and you know that he's wrote that word across it, it's finished. And I can say, Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that's why we serve him. That's why we love him. That's why we try to live our life for him. That's why we're obedient to him, because we love him, not because we're trying to earn it. That's all Galatians is trying to say. I could actually not preach for four more weeks if you could just pick that up. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, you've done so much for us, Lord. You've ransomed us. You've made us new, Lord. You've given us new life and new hope. Lord, you've written over the top of us. It is finished. I paid the price. Lord, we thank you. We bless you, Lord. Lord, bless your people. In your name we pray. Everybody said.